HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Cider Week New York City, happening November 6th through 15th, 2015. For more information, check out ciderweeknyc.com. This is Michael Harlan Turkel, host of The Food Scene. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen, a cooking store located at 100 Frost Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Join me every Wednesday as I talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. You can find Feast Your Ears, as well as lots of other great shows, at heritageradionetwork.org and on iTunes. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter, at Feast Your Ears. Today in the studio, joining me, is Matt Dellinger. Um, Matt is a writer, a resident of the borough of Brooklyn, like myself, uh, and is interested in uh, a lot of history stuff. Uh, Thanks for joining me today, Matt. Yeah, thanks. Glad to be here. Um, Can you introduce yourself and talk a little bit about... You know what you do. What do you tell people you do if you meet them and they say, "What do you oh, do?" Oh, it's Matt? very complicated. <laughs> uh, the short answer is, I'm a writer and uh, I do big digital archives for magazines. So the, most of my time and uh, and income comes from helping people with their big archives. But uh, I'm also I, I've written a book and um, I'm working on another one, and that kind of occupies most of my my passion time uh, and bandwidth. Yeah, great. Um, I found you, Kristen, who's my producer, found you because uh, we were looking for interesting people. And you seem pretty interesting. Well, um, and uh, But it was through a piece that you wrote for the Times about being a uh, Civil War reenactor. Um, you had written about becoming interested in reenacting events, and now that's something you do regularly, correct? Yeah, it was. it's a very... Uh, I, I kind of entered into reenacting as a form of research. Um, about 10 years ago or so, I met a group of reenactors at an event in, in the Greenwood Cemetery. They were rededicating the monument there for to Civil War soldiers. And uh, there were a group of reenactors from the Brooklyn 14th, and they had interesting uniforms. They had red pants instead of blue. Uh, they they kind of had interesting jackets with a lot of brass buttons on them. And I, I struck up a conversation with a few of these reenactors, and 
uh, just the story of the regiment and and the way these guys talked about it. It was infectious. This uh, and I kind of went went home and googled and started reading and you know then looked outside and the sun was going down and I had spent all day basically reading about these this regiment and um, you know fast forward a couple of years and I set out to write a book about them and so I called them back up and said. You know, the guy, I still have the guy's emails and phone numbers and said, you know, I, I, I want to join you. I want to, you know, I want to put the uniform on and go out with you. And, uh, I, I, you know, I wasn't sure how I'd like it, but it, it turns out to be a lot of fun. It's basically, you know, camping, uh, but with guns and <laughs> <laughs> I've done a lot of camping with guns. It's yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> and not wearing red. That's right. Pants, for, but... for, yeah. For a lot of people, there's no, there's no distinction there, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, and the history element of it, it's, it's just, it's kind of fun. I mean, I, I, I know a lot of people think of it as a kind of a hokey slash dorky hobby. Um, and I'm sure it is to some degree, but, uh, at the same time, there's no replacement for it. I don't know how I would have gained kind of the category of knowledge I have if I hadn't tried to do it myself. Sure. I mean, it, it seems to me to be something, um, in fact, valuable, right? That we, as a country, are you know we, we're in a war we've been in we've been in a war for a really long time but none of us have any real connection to that unless you are a soldier who served or have family who's a soldier who served but the civil war was the last war that actually happened on our soil yeah and there's nobody alive who remembers that actually happening who remembers their family shipping off to actually go fight other members of our country that's right and you know not it wasn't long after the civil war when you had, uh, you know, machine guns and airplanes and, and things that made war a lot more mechanized. And so this was kind of the last, you know, marching for miles. You know, other wars involved marching, obviously, but there was, you know, just it's something you can wrap your head around. It's it's I mean, organic's not the right word, but it, it, it has that same sort of um, down home feel, the Civil sure. War. It's 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 handmade in many ways. Everything that a soldier used to fight he carried on his back. Right. When uh, you're involved in the, the specific reenactments, do they take place in the original locations of the battles? And um, and I guess, you know, as a member of the Brooklyn 14th, um, you know, are you playing yourself, Matt Dellinger, when you are doing the reenactment, or are you, yeah. are you playing a, an actual soldier who was in the regiment? Well, the level of uh, kind of fidelity to reality differs from event to event. Uh, Some events are very much living history events where we're basically there, we set up a camp, we're in uniform, and our main job is to engage with the modern public and have these kind of conversations where, um, you know, we don't pretend to not know what they're talking about if they talk about the state of Alaska or something. (laughs) Uh, What's Alaska? You know, we... Um, we're very comfortable mingling, uh, centuries and, and the past and the present. And so, but there are, there are events where it is, you know, this is the 150th Gettysburg. So we're going to do, it's going to be multiple days and the last thing's going to be Pickett's Charge and the first thing's going to be the railroad cut. And, you know, we try to have the, uh, the sequence of events match what, what actually happened. Um, do the, uh, do the, the folks who are reenacting on the, uh, Confederate side uh, or rebel side, um, you know, 
in in these uh, in these battles or in the reenacting of the war do they uh, you know do they get well, bummed out? I mean, they're playing a losing side. Not right? always, though. I mean, you know, we uh, the first reenactment of of each five year cycle is Bull Run, and uh, you know the, the Confederates did pretty well at Bull Run, and the, it was the Union that uh, ran back to Washington, literally. Um, but there, there's a joke we you know we joke about uh, Revlar instead of Kevlar that you know we'll be shooting and shooting and shooting and no one's falling down and uh you know there there's there's moments where it doesn't quite live up to reality there's maybe not quite as many casualties as you would expect given the historical circumstances but i mean again we all we all know that it's uh the verb we use about reenacting is play you know right. they're not playing nice you know we know it's play it's right. not uh um and and you asked about adopt you know do you portray anyone um Basically, we 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 all adopt soldiers. We were encouraged to pick someone from the company of our regiment and get to know as much about them as possible and research them. Obviously, I'm researching the the whole regiment. So, um, but I I kind of <clears throat> by the time I joined, I was uh, a couple years ago. A lot of the people who had started out at the very beginning and had made it through the whole three years of their engagement uh, were taken. So <laughs> I had a choice between. Choosing someone who was either died or wounded or captured very early, or someone who started late. And I chose someone who started late. I thought that would be an interesting, you know, what if you came into this war in the middle? Uh, and, and there was a group of 1862 recruits that joined um, right before Antietam. And if you can imagine kind of, you know, coming into the Civil War and having that be your your welcome uh, it was a very, very bloody battle. The Brooklyn 14th in particular sustained many casualties, and a lot of the guys who had just arrived as new recruits were actually um, got into the fight, even though they hadn't been fully trained and probably weren't expected to. Um, so anyway, it's, 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 uh, you adopt a soldier just enough to kind of have an interesting personal perspective on, on the, the events that the regiment went through. But no, we don't, you know, I, don't, I don't answer to... John Boyce, who's the, the guy's name. Right. Um, and so you talk about how it becomes, you know, it's, a, it's about camping. And so you're camping and sleeping in, I assume, period-appropriate tents and, and, oh, yes. and sleeping facilities. Um, and uh, what about cooking? Well, cooking, um, we've gotten th – there have been periods where we're into cooking and periods where we're not into cooking. Uh, generally, though, the food situation at an event follows – you know, I was talking about the, the range of authenticity. Um, we, we have this kind of home um, home turf, uh, home field, whatever, in, in Long Island at Old Bethpage Village Restoration. And we have a good relationship with them, and we can just kind of go. And if there's four of us that want to camp and, and sit around the fire and set up our tents and march around, we can. Um, <clears throat> sometimes there's, you know... At dinner time, we hop in our cars and we drive to McDonald's and in uniform. Yeah, and we stand in line at McDonald's wearing our uniforms. <laughs> That's obviously not very authentic. In other cases, you know, uh, at the most recent event, um, I went to uh, Paisano Meat Market on Smith Street, right by my house, and I bought some wild game sausages that I thought would be, you know, I'm sure not exactly period correct, but close enough. Uh, venison and um, rabbit and wild boar and uh what was the fourth one i'll think of it duck hmm. and and yeah cooked them you know we had a campfire and you kind of carve out a spot and rake over some coals and put down a skillet and uh 
as the the lights going away you know there's it's challenging circumstances but it, it's it's to me it's very fun to kind of eat in that i guess it would be called paleo or primal some kind of very basic way um where you're not using a ton of spices or a ton of uh oil or um even you know intricate cooking equipment you're basically just applying heat to food and eating it uh if if that so a lot of times when i go shopping for an event i'll just go and get you know if if i can find green beans with the stems still on and kind of multiple of them stuck together that's perfect for the kind of feel that i'm looking for uh at an event and um I actually have these muslin sacks, these <laughs> unbleached muslin sacks, and you can basically throw anything you want in there, and it'll look authentic when you, yeah. So even for, if it's for how it was being carried, yeah. In the, in the so you throw those beans, you take them out of the plastic bag, you put them in that bag, or you 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 buy some almonds, and you. I don't think I'm not sure almonds were that uh, prevalent in North America back then, but doubtful, I doubtful. Think. But, but you know, peanuts, sure, perhaps um, peanuts for sure. Uh, Anyway, we, pecans. Yeah, so <clears throat> it's again, it's not a. We don't do the research into the food quite as much as we we do the battle aspects of things, or the uniforms in particular are very very well researched. So you mentioned the uniforms, you mentioned the 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 red pants, but you know at least my my experience learning about the Civil War, the North was blue. Mm-hmm. So how do the how do how do the, where the red where do the red pants come from and fit in? Well, the. Uh, so right before the Civil War, um, there wasn't a very big army in the U.S. There wasn't a big standing army like we have now. You had a lot of local militias that were a lot more like the National Guard, but even even still also kind of like the Marat Shriners or, or the, you know, the Moose Lodge or something. It was kind of a, um, you know, community organization that was slightly militarized. Uh, and, well, I mean, it was a militia. It was It was formed by the state of New York. It was... You report it up to the to a state commander, but <clears throat> Brooklyn had a number of these militias. I, I mean, fourteen of them, I guess, uh, at least, <laughs> and uh, each of them could choose their own uniform. So the Brooklyn Fourteenth uh, had a uniform made that was inspired by this French uh, uniform worn by the chasseurs, this kind of light infantry group. Um, and the, you know, the jackets, a lot of people mistake us for Zouaves, which is a type of soldier where they had the fez and a really short jacket and balloony kind and of Zouaves, pantaloons. And the as I understand it, were related actually to the fire department. That's right. There's a well. New York regiment of fire Zouaves yeah. um, that had the red pants. And, and those, they're famous. Um, the Brooklyn 14th are less famous. Um, um, I hope to change that. But, <laughs> but the... Uh, their pants were regular straight pants and the jacket was not quite as cartoonish. It was, it was a little more normal. Um, but they had these, these uniforms designed and made and at Bull Run, which I mentioned before the early battle in the war, Bull Run was a mess. I mean, neither of these armies was really prepared to fight, uh, at all, let alone in a, in a major engagement. And they didn't have time to standardize the uniforms. All these people were Americans. So they, you know, it wasn't, It wasn't obvious that the North was going to be blue and the South was going to be gray. Um, and so there were Northerners wearing gray. There were Southerners wearing blue. There were, you know, and people were shooting at the wrong side. And um, at, at that battle, uh, Stonewall Jackson, when the, the Brooklyn 14th were doing some repeated charging of his position, apparently said, it's quoted as saying, here come those red-legged devils again. And so red-legged devil is the kind of worn with a badge of honor 
worn with pride as a nickname for the Brooklyn 14th. And sort of from that moment forward, they resisted every attempt to bring them into the normal Union Army. So they, they tried to say, you're not the Brooklyn 14th. We're going to call you the 84th New York. We're reorganizing the number system. And they said, no, we're not, we're not 84th New York. We're 14th Brooklyn. And they fought and went all the way up to the Secretary of War who said, okay, you fought under the Brooklyn 14th under that flag. We can't change it now. Uh, and, the, and even the uniforms, they would send them kind of the blue uniforms, the federal issue uniforms. And the guys would wear them like to dig trenches. And then when the battle happened, they'd, they'd, change, back, yeah, they'd change back into the red pants. So Were they the only regiment in the war that was able to keep their locale in their name? I mean, you talk, Great talk question. about being yes. organized. They were the only, they're the only regiment that really is known as a, by a city designation, not a state designation. Um, there were other prevalent, prevalent nicknames on both sides. Um, and regiment, at that time, Brooklyn wasn't even, I mean, Brooklyn was its own city still. It was its own the, city. New York City had not been organized into the five boroughs yet. That's right. Until the 1890s, it was a separate city and a rival city of New York. Sure. Yeah. Um, I have a, a a lot of experience with the history of firefighting in New York. My father is a firefighter no and kidding. collects antique firefighting things. So the fire zoobs are something I, ah. I, I've, I've learned about and seen seen a little bit about. They should put on the uniform, come out sometime. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um but I'm interested to know, you know, in there there have been lots of histories written of the fire department of the city. There was a famous one written in the late 19th century that listed every single firehouse because they were all volunteers initially. Yeah. There, was a, there, there was a book written about Brooklyn and then there was one written about uh, about New York focused on Manhattan. And, you know, they go through and list all of the guys who were in these firehouses, but they all had other jobs. Right. Right. And so exactly. there's all of the, you know, one guy's a tinker and one guy's a tinsmith and one guy's a blacksmith and the other guy's a butcher and, you know, all of these, these different jobs and they all happen to also be firefighters. Is that the same thing with the, with the civil war? Absolutely. Yeah. These militia was not a full-time job at all. These guys were bankers or they were pipe fitters at the Navy yard or, um, I think the, the, so the Colonel, the first Colonel at Bull Run was a guy named Alfred Wood who uh, was captured at that battle, eventually returned in a prison swap and became mayor of Brooklyn. So he was mayor of Brooklyn um, later in the war, and the uh, Fowler, Edwin, Edward Fowler became the, uh, and the, for those of you listening or uh, yet to listen who live in Fort Greene, there's that triangular park right by Smoke Joint and Franks and near BAM. Uh, the guy in uniform, the statue in that triangle, is Colonel Fowler of the 14th Brooklyn. And he, uh, after the war, was an accountant, hmm. you know, and he lived out his days in Brooklyn, ha having led this heroic regiment. And uh, in those days, you didn't have, like, you know, retired military people going into the defense business. You probably <laughs> did, but, this, but you know, Edwin Fowler just became an accountant. People hmm. went back to their everyday lives uh, in large part. And, uh, yeah, it, that, that's part of what the story I want to tell and why it's, it's, uh, so much harder to research. I mean, you can tell many times the story of the Brooklyn 14th and, and their actions in battle have been told and compiled and monuments built to them. And, um, but what about these individual people? That's what I'm kind of fascinated by and want to dig into, you know, what happened, you know, there's, there's a guy named Alfred Cranston and the Brooklyn historical society has a lot of the family papers. And there's some picture of him as an old man with a white mustache, um, with a bicycle. The bicycle wasn't, didn't exist during the civil war. It was kind of popularized in the late 1800s. 
1880s. Um, so these guys, you know, imagine these guys, they fought in the Civil War and they watched Brooklyn change so dramatically. They watched the Brooklyn Bridge get built. They watched streetcars come. They watched the bicycle happen. And all this stuff that kind of are, are the elements of our modern Brooklyn um, really kind of started back then. And it, the, it was a time of great change when Brooklyn went from a, a farming community, a rural community, and really became a city in its own right and then part of New York. And these guys watched it happen. What, the, the reason I chose the guy I did, John Boyce, is because he lived into the 1920s. I found an, an article from – they used to get together every year as a, in a reunion in Fort Greene Park, which is where they had first formed up um, as a regiment uh, and recruiting them off to war. Um, and in, I think, 1926 or something, he was one of the last 14 members of the Brooklyn 14th. So I'm hoping he left behind an interesting life yeah. that I can you know, poke around into. That was my hope. Nice. Uh, yeah, I look forward to uh, I look forward to reading that uh, when when it's when it's written. We're going to take a short break, uh, and when we come back, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about the uh, Brooklyn Fourteenth, and then we'll talk about some other uh, eating and traveling. Great. helps to bring profitability to local orchards while reviving heirloom apple varieties by cultivating awareness of craft cider. Cider Week connects cider makers from New York State and select pioneering guest cideries outside the state to buyers from top restaurants, bars, and retail shops across New York City. Those culinary tastemakers, in turn, help increase consumer awareness of cider's pleasures by hosting public events, tastings, dinners, classes, and pairings that build appreciation and demand for regional ciders. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen, and with me today is writer Matt Dellinger. Before the break, we were talking about Matt's experiences uh, doing Civil War reenacting with the 14th Brooklyn Regiment. Um, and I'd like to turn the conversation now to some of your other work, Matt. Mm-hmm. Um, you wrote a book about Interstate 69, uh, which has been called the NAFTA Highway. Uh, it's a highway that remains unfinished that was planned to go from Canada to Mexico. Right. That's right. Uh, what part of it is complete? Well, there it's under construction in Indiana. Um, the, the a portion that goes from Port Huron, Michigan, in a big arc around Detroit and down into Indianapolis, Indiana, my hometown, was part of the original interstate system. And the plan was to extend it uh, south to Evansville, Indiana, kind of along western Kentucky, down into Memphis and western Tennessee, and then into the Mississippi Delta, um, cutting across corners of Arkansas and Louisiana into East Texas and around Houston and then down the Rio Grande Valley. It's a very long planned highway. Um, the Texas portions are kind of being built just as Texas upgrades its U.S. its state highways and U.S. highways. Um, so, so the roadbeds are already there. It's just not part in of their the case. Yeah they, yeah, they just were they were like, look, we have this road from Houston to to Brownsville. We'll just make it an interstate, you know, close off the cross sections and everything. Um, the places that are trying to build 
the places that are the slowest and may never be completed are bridges. So they have to get over the Ohio River south of Evansville, and they have to get over the Mississippi River uh, somewhere between Mississippi and Arkansas. There's a spot that's planned, but it's kind of connecting two rural communities, and um, there's not a lot of economic activity, and they just put a new bridge at Greenville, so it's kind of... Anyway, we're in the weeds, but it's, it's each state has to handle its piece. There sure. is no more federal interstate program. So what that means is some states have money, some states have... The, you know, the, the highway promoters have more political influence than in other states. So it's being kind of built piecemeal um, in Indiana and Mississippi and Tennessee. It's under construction, but definitely not in, uh, you know, Arkansas. Do you think that do you think it will be completed someday or is this destined to be a sort I, of project like the um, like the lower Manhattan uh, Expressway? I bet you in 20 years there's a way to drive on some road called I-69 from Canada to Mexico. Uh whether it will follow the route that was intended, I don't know. But they might, you know, the way that they do, they kind of assign one interstate two numbers, you know, just to get from here to there. They might do that. Uh, but, the, you know, the, this book, I, I took seven years. To, I, I like to research. I like to take my time uh, working on a book, um, much to my the chagrin of my uh, agent and readers. But, uh, <laughs> you know, reporting the I-69 book was just so much fun. I'm from Indianapolis. My dad moved to Houston and I was down in the Mississippi Delta writing for the Oxford American, um, you know, 15 years ago. Uh, and those three places were just really different and really interesting. And I, I kind of got this taste in my mouth for, uh, rural America or, you know, small town America, the kind of the places nobody ever goes. Um, and, and just, have, it's so great to be a journalist because you can just roll into a small town and and email the mayor or the mayor's office or whatever, and that person, you know, the mayor will spend all day with you, <laughs> driving around town with you, pointing out everything. You know, oh, you, oh, you want to tour that factory? Okay, okay, and he makes a phone call, and you're touring a you know Toyota plant or whatever it is. Um, it's just kind of like having this backstage access to an America that people don't really think about that often, um, and it was great fun, and there was great food. Um, yeah, I mean the, the, the food in those kinds of places, um, I've driven cross country a number of times and a lot of time spent on the highway, but always tried to make time to get off the highway as much yeah, as possible. Yeah, that's, there's an art to that kind of knowing which exit is going to have the, the non-chain, you yeah, know, cause they can't always sure. afford the sign on the, on the blue food sign coming towards the exit, but you're like, I bet this one, I don't know, this exit's got something and you get off <laughs> The most memorable one that I ever went to uh, was in New Mexico. Uh, there was a cafe called uh, Lena's, mm -hmm. um, and I had just a, a great breakfast there yeah. that I remember to this day. I don't even know if it's still there. I have no idea what town it was in. In New Mexico, yeah. Lena's. Hmm. Sounds delicious. It was. What did you eat? Do you remember what you ate? Uh, some some version of a sort of like Southwest, you know. Eggs, oh, yeah. Scramble, scramble kind of thing. Kind of thing. Um, yeah, there was. I remember being introduced by during the reporting of this book, introduced in Austin, Texas, to migas, the kind of thing where you crumble up tortillas and put them into scrambled eggs. That place is gone now. It's like a big condo building. Um, but my favorite place, uh, there's a place in Memphis, Tennessee, called the Little Tea Shop, and I randomly just went in there one day, uh, just thinking, oh, this looks cute, uh, interesting, and the address was sixty nine. <laughs> at 69 Monroe Street and I thought oh alright fine I'll eat here um, 
and it, it it's it's I've been going there now regularly for uh, ever since, which is probably ten years. It's it's run by this woman Suhair Lauk, and uh, she um, and her late husband Jimmy bought the place, you know, decades ago, and they they're just these fixtures in downtown Memphis. All of the politicians and lawyers and judges and journalists kind of come there for lunch and and talk and it's only open for lunch it's open from 11 a.m i think to 2 p.m during the week five days that's it uh and yet it's it's crowded it the food is amazing she you know you get corn sticks which are these cornbread in the shape of a stick my Mm. stomach's actually growling talking about the little tea shop but (laughs) let's, let's go to memphis i'm ready for lunch uh yeah, but she so she's Palestinian and she they don't use pork. Um, so it's sure. a lot of you know it's interesting and because in Memphis, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Most places in Memphis, you just uh, you, you can't get away from pork. It's in the it's in the water. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but she she makes turnip greens with no pork, and they're just delicious. They're the best turnip greens in the city. I don't know. Uh, I lived for a summer uh, when I was in college in Indianola, Iowa, oh. which is on 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 I thirty five south of uh, Des Moines. Okay, and there was it was a it was a small town um, that had been you know because it was off the highway had lots of chains there was a Cracker Barrel and Pizza right. Hut and Taco Bell and all those things but there was one there were two independent restaurants in town one was like white tablecloth and fancy mm-hmm. because there was an opera company that's what I was there to do at the there was a, a university uh-huh. there that in the summer had an opera company so for the for the well heeled opera patrons there was a white tablecloth cloth napkin kind of place the other independent place in town was where all of the soy and pork farmers hung out and it was just a like lunch counter cafe oh yeah and every single one there were there were hooks on the wall and Mm -hmm. every single regular had a coffee cup oh wow hanging on the wall that when they came in in the morning that was it and what was playing on the radio every time i went there i went there two three times a week probably for breakfast every time i went what was playing on the radio was like the farm report it was about what the pork and soybean futures were that's fantastic and all everybody's sitting around talking and their specialty which was not i i will say not gastronomically wonderful yeah. but i do remember it very specifically was beer cheese soup that was Ooh. on the menu all the time. That sounds very thing. Iowa. Yeah. That sounds very Midwestern. It's very, yeah. really heavy in the middle of <laughs> July when it's like 90 degrees out to eat a bowl of beer cheese soup. But yeah, you're reminding me of a place in uh, in Memphis where I was taken for breakfast one time. It's on President Island, which which is this industrial island where all the petrochemical and just shipping and uh, stuff happens. And yeah, there's a place where, I mean, until recently, might still even be true in some places, there were smoking sections in restaurants still in Memphis. Um, or, you know, or a non-smoking section, which is one table near the bathrooms or something. But, yeah, you, you just the number of pickup trucks in the parking lot tells you <laughs> that, this, sure. you know, you're going to eat good food for cheap. That's a good indicator. We, when, yeah. I, when, I've, uh, when I've been on the road, um, we always look for uh, cop cars. Yeah, there you, you go. Look for like the the local police and where they're eating lunch. That's how I discovered a place called Daddy D's, which is still there in Atlanta. Um, huh. Outside downtown Atlanta, there's a barbecue place called Daddy D's that I first ate at about 13 years ago, I think. Yeah, um, happened to be in Atlanta, driving through, driving down the road, hungry. Saw three cop cars and the pickup truck <laughs> parked in the, this ramshackle, you know, painted plywood place. Yeah. Uh, not unlike some of the aesthetics of Roberta's where we exactly, are right now. Exactly, shipping container. Um, and uh, I've been there many times since. I've brought uh, 
out-of-town guests from Japan who I happened to see in, in Atlanta there. And This was an idea. Maybe, maybe you and I can start a business doing this. I thought to myself, especially working on this book, like, I could start a business where I take, like, New Yorkers, people who've never been west of the Hudson River, and it's like a safari. Like, we're going <laughs> to... We're going to go to Tennessee or in Indiana, and I'm going to show you all the, all the three good places, you know, uh, that kind of thing. I, I mean, I, I, think, I think there's <laughs> definitely something there. I think, uh, you know, I think that that business model with the Internet is a little tougher, right? Because the Internet has, like, has, has changed our ability to, to look at and identify these sort of cool I guess that's, that's right. out there. I guess um, Yelp has stolen my thunder. But I, but I do think it's a, it, it is an interesting idea to... to uh, take people on that kind of experience of i've i've done the work of finding this place i got off at exit 32 and turned left instead of right and like yeah i get so sad about people who go to memphis and they hang out on beale street and they go to the three museums and then they fly home and they go oh well all right if you care about memphis i guess it's a cool place if you care about sorry if you care about elvis yeah um but there's just so much more to it um in your research uh for the book was there anywhere that you went um where you felt like the highway was really going to improve things for people there that it was really going to be like a boon i mean you talk about these areas in very rural mississippi and and uh, and arkansas where they need to build a bridge and i mean looking at like you know there's a number of bridges going up around us there's a new kosciusko bridge and i don't even know what the price tag is on that there's a new (laughs) tap and z bridge that's in the billions of dollars uh, that we're building and you know obviously we're talking about the affluent northeast when we talk about those well i mean i could talk for a long time about this uh in it to boil it down i mean the book did not take a position the book was not pro-highway the book was not anti-highway um there are places that had a legitimate expectation of economic development to come out of the building of the highway. Um, the Mississippi Delta, though, you know, a lot of the economic development people there told me in all candor that, like, you know, the highway is just one part of it. We don't have a very well-educated workforce here. We don't have a very good reputation here. We don't have, um, you know, the farther you get from Memphis the farther you or, or Jackson, the farther you get from a place people want to live near. I mean, people, there's kind of this urbanization happening. So, um, I think to some degree, uh, highway as economic development tool is an old way of thinking. Um, on the other hand, there are without a doubt places that, you know, I don't know. I, I, I again took a very historical look in the writing of this book, and you know, you go to some of these towns, and the reason they're they exist in the first place is because they were on a railroad. A train needed to stop and do whatever, get more coal, get water, more water yeah. every twenty miles or something. <laughs> so, if you wanted a rail line from Indianapolis to the Ohio River, you needed a town every every twenty minutes, every whatever, every so often. And that meant there was a grain elevator. That meant there was some place to eat. There were probably a, a smattering of houses. There was at least a village. And when the interstates replaced the railroad as the vital kind of economic bloodstream of the country, a lot of it, the, I mean, actually railroad, freight railroad is still very important to a lot of industries, but for the main kind of, you know, UPS and, and stuff like that, uh, a lot of these towns have dried up. So... Uh, you know, it's tough to argue with a person who grew up in a town and is now 50 years old and the mayor or the economic development chief and who says, you know, we've got to fight for this town to survive. Um, 
my heart goes out to them. But right. yeah, but it, then if you pull back a thousand feet, you know, a, kind of a a view from the moon, and you just think, oh well, the nation's reorganizing itself yet again. Right. You know, the great march continues. Perhaps you could take those people on a safari to Manhattan. You, know, you could have to <laughs> there we go. back and forth. Yeah, perhaps you'd be more comfortable in a efficiency apartment <laughs> in Bushwick. Probably not. Um, well, just to, to finish up here, I'd like to, to bring it back to food. Yes. Um, I understand that uh, at least twice a year you make gumbo. That it's true. That you're known for. Um, can it's you true. Uh, Can you give us sort of a, a, a rough uh, a layout, layout of your of your gumbo recipe and also uh, why why gumbo? Well, yeah, it's funny. Uh, I used to throw a I'm big into annual events, apparently, but I used to have a Super Bowl party at my apartment uh, when I had a roommate that I went to college with, and we we would just make chili every year. And then one year, a vegetarian was coming, so, uh-oh, we have to make a vegetarian chili. And then another year, um, you know, you just get bored, so you're like, oh, let's try a white bean something-something. Sound, sounds very much like... Uh my wife and I have a New Year's Day chili party oh, every year. There you go, yeah. And we're on, like, the, I don't know, 14 years or something coming up. So, I mean, like, very similar. You know, we. That's a very, that's, New Year's Day is a great time for this because you know everyone's home and needing good yep. comfort food. <laughs> Hungover. But then when you're, uh, when the Super Bowl was in New Orleans, whatever year that was in the early 2000s, you know, um, we thought, oh, well, the Super Bowl's in New Orleans, we'll make gumbo. And I start. I had this recipe in a big. I think it's literally called the Big Boop Book of Soups and Stews or something like that. Uh, and I was setting out to make duck gumbo, and uh, I, I went to Chinatown and bought a duck. Like I, I'd seen them hanging in windows. <laughs> it wasn't a Peking duck. It was a raw duck. But I brought it uh, home, and um, a, f- a friend of mine who happened to be there kind of to sous chef for me was like, Oh, duck fat. That's perfect. You're going to make the roux with the duck fat. I said, uh, am I? Oh, <laughs> I guess I am. And then looked up how to do that. And so, yeah, you just uh, kind of all from scratch, take the skin off the duck, sizzle the skin, get the duck fat, make a roux. It takes a very long time. Uh, and then the vegetables go in and I put the duck meat in and I put andouille sausage in and I put uh, shrimp and oysters and one year I put in nutria. Do you know what a nutria is? Yes, I do. I've never I've uh-huh. never eaten it. I was invited once to go nutria hunting, but I didn't actually oh, go. Oh, that sounds like more fun than nutria eating. <laughs> <laughs> but there was a... Actually, a For those of you listening who don't know what a nutria is, a nutria is a large rodent. A swamp rodent. Yeah, that lives down in the Mississippi Delta area. It was introduced to Louisiana. By the guy who invented Tabasco sauce. Oh, I did not know yeah, that. Who brought them over from France to uh, grow them for fur. And then he decided to get out of that business. And nobody, re- nobody wanted rat fur coats that weren't really popular, I <laughs> And guess. he released them into the wild, thinking, well, the gators will get them. Uh, and the rest is history. Now it's an infestation. So a friend of mine who was a Fox News producer uh, said, you know, for the show, we want to do a story about Nutria and how Louisiana's trying to get people to eat these and kill and eat these things. You'll eat anything. Will you cook with this thing and then talk to us? And I said, well, sure. And actually, it was in the, it was in the freezer at the New Yorker for a long time because that's where she had handed it off to me. So I brought it home and put it in the gumbo. Huh. And it was, yeah, you know, pretty, unre- pretty mediocre. Yeah. Well, it sounds good. I'm going to have to, I'm gonna have to uh, 
check out and make some make some duck. Yeah, I'll gumbo. send you some tips. Great. Uh, well, thank you, Matt. I think we're uh, we're pretty much out of time here, but I appreciate you taking your time out of your Wednesday to come down to the studio and hang out. Uh, thank you for listening this week to Feast Your Ears. Big thank you to Kristen Baylor, my producer, and Liz Smith, who engineers this show every Wednesday. And if you have a chance, please take a moment to like the show on Facebook and iTunes and follow me on Instagram. Talk to you next week. for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org you can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the itunes store by searching heritage radio network you can like us on facebook and follow us on twitter at heritage underscore radio you can email us questions at any time at info at heritage radio network.org heritage radio network is a non-profit organization to donate and become a member visit our website today thanks for listening